This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. A couple guys made fun of me. Dale was one of them. I said, what are you, some kind of pussy? What do you need that thing for? You can't see with that. You can't turn your head. And my father-in-law was sitting outside my motorhome watching on TV, 
He said, Brett, it's bad. I was living in my bus in the shop, and the next week the bank came and took the bus, and the bank put a lock on the race shop. It's life. You don't have to look very far to see someone that has it way worse than you do. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, Friday night, I was at dinner, and I checked my phone, and I found out that Matt Weaver had filed a story on what we are trying to accomplish with the Scene Vault and the Scene Vault Podcast and everything. And the reaction that it got on social media was gratifying. It was very nice to see that people are responding to what we're trying to do. And for a a person of Matt's stature, I mean, he's one of the icons in the sport right now. He posted this story on Auto Week. That was very cool to see that. Absolutely. I read this story. Good job by Matt. And I was very pleased with your actions we got. You know, Rick, fans are pretty aware of what we're doing. If social media is any guy at all, I think it is. So yeah, listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check out Matt's story, please do that. Please look it up on Auto Week. It'll be at or very near the top. You'll get a feel for what we are trying to do. And everything that's happened with Marcus Lemonis, Marcus Lemonis actually retweeted that story. So he's on board with that. Said that it was an awesome job by Matt. Steve, I don't want to say that it's all finally coming together. I don't want to jinx it, but it really does feel like we've got some momentum going. And hopefully at some point in the relatively near future, we are going to be able to make this SceneVault website a reality. Don't know when it's going to happen. It's not going to be next week or anything like that, but at least we can see a little bit of it starting to take shape. I agree with Rick. Uh, All the ingredients are there, and it's just a matter of time to bring them all together. But they're there. We're ready. This week, we are going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Brett Bodine. And Steve, I don't know about you, but some of the things that he said this week left me all but speechless. It was incredibly powerful on a lot of different fronts. And you could see the emotion in Brett's face and in his voice as he talked about some of these experiences that he had. But I want to point out, when it was all over Rick, he was just smiling and beaming and friendly as he could be. It was like recalling a bad series of incidents. But it was also the ability to brush them aside and go on. Brett was at the track when Jeff had his very infamous crash at Daytona in the inaugural truck series race in the year 2000. And he remembers all that that he went through. And then Steve, that very same year, he faced some pretty serious opposition when he began using the Hans device. And that opposition, I don't know how else to put it, that opposition came from Dale Earnhardt. And that is no surprise, to be honest, Rick. And I do want to tell our listeners, there is some language in that part of the episode, and I didn't bleep it out because I feel like the emotion was very raw. It's not something I'm trying to sensationalize, but I just wanted the listeners to get a sense of just how seriously Brett was taking this. 
That's a good move, Rick. That's a good move because the emphasis is on how the reaction was to him using a Hans device for the first time. A couple of years after that, I believe it was in the year 2003, Brett faced a very serious crash at Michigan in which he sustained some pretty serious injuries. And also at the very same time, his personal life was falling apart. He was going through a divorce and that all culminated the crash and the divorce and everything. Those emotions were very raw. And I think that they came through loud and clear as Brett was telling us about just how serious things had gotten for him personally. He was this close to being homeless. That's right. He was living in his motor coach at the shop. And then the bank came in and took the motor coach and the shop. He actually had to borrow money from Jeff and Todd to be able to afford to get an apartment. And he said that when he was in that apartment, it was just him and a folding chair and a TV. And that was it, basically. That's right. And Brett told me one time when we talked about this quite a while ago, he looked at me and he smiled and he said, hey, man, I lost everything. And I do mean everything. But he was able to smile about it because he got past it. In our second segment, we are going to go back to the September 25th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup Scene. Mark Martin wins at Dover on fuel mileage. Dale Earnhardt runs second just three weeks after that just bizarre blackout episode at Darlington. Kyle Petty dominates the second half of the race only to fall to third at the end after having to stop for fuel. Buckshot Jones is mad during the Bush Series race. (laughs) (laughs) But he's mad at Joe Bessie and not Randy LaJoy, miracle of all miracles. (laughs) You wrote an awesome column about your buddy Dick Thompson as part of a 50th anniversary package for Martinsville Speedway. And then there is news that Brett Bodine had taken his sponsor's name off of his car that weekend at Dover. The very same week that Jeff was informed that QVC was not going to be returning as his sponsor. So that was not a good week for the Bodine brothers on the sponsorship front. No, it wasn't. Just added to Brett's troubles at the time. And Washington Irving Motorsports announced that it would be running the full Bush Series schedule in 1998 with sponsorship from Dr. Pepper. And again, I love the way that the sports past connects with its present because last week came word that Michael Jordan was going to be forming a team for Bubba Wallace with help from Denny Hamlin. So that was a nice little tie-in there, I thought. It shows you that the more things change in NASCAR, the more they stay the same. Finally, this week, we have new Patreon support from Brian Green and increased support from Scott Burgess, Alvin Pewitt, and Jamie Creasy. So, Brian, Scott, Alvin, Jamie, thank y'all. You have become part of the family. You have become part of our support system. Scott and Alvin and Jamie were already supporting us, but they believe and what we are doing so much that they actually increased their support. And Brian jumped on board as well. So, guys, thank you. Thank you very much. I I don't know what to say. I don't know how to fully express what it means for you to be behind us, but I do appreciate it. So, listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support our sponsors in QWare and Brian Kelb. They have been there from the beginning. And they have helped us get to this point. They have helped sustain us. 
And again, words cannot fully express what it means to have them on board. So again, remember, if you sign up for Patreon at $5 a month, I'll send you a classic issue of Grand National Scene and the commemorative issue that we did with Darlington. Do $10 a month and you'll get two classic issues of Grand National Scene and the commemorative issue and so forth. And when you pledge, let me know who your favorite driver or track might have been. And I will try my best to get you hooked up with issues featuring that driver or track. And I don't know that I can fulfill a specific issue, but I will try my best. I I can't promise a specific issue, but more than likely I can help you out with a particular driver or a particular track. So we're all in this together. And so many people have signed up and so many have actually said, we're not in it for what we get out of it. We're in it to support the podcast and to keep it going. So that has been a very cool process to see, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. And if you sign up and you get that commemorative issue we did for Darlington, I think you're really going to enjoy it. I sent one to my buddy, Tom Bowles up at frontstretch.com. I'm sure a lot of you listeners are familiar with that. He wrote me back and he said he read it cover to cover and he could not believe all the memories that came back to him at the races at Darlington after he read that issue. So it's going to be something special for you. Well, when this website comes together, he ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) (laughs) So if you can help us out on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast, or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the Scene Vault Podcast. February 2000, Jeff wrecks at Daytona in the truck race, and I know what my reaction was. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for a family member. I was standing on the top of my motorhome watching the truck race, and I could not see the yeah. trioval. Yeah. I could see the trucks come off of four, and I could see him go down the short chute in one. Well, I saw him come off of four in a pack. They were running in a pack all day, and then I heard the wreck and didn't see him come out the other end. I got down off the motorhome, and my father-in-law was sitting outside my motorhome watching on TV. He said, Brett, it's bad. Mm-hmm. And I could tell, but my father-in-law says, it was bad. So I immediately went to the infield care center. They let me in. And at the time, they had a camera that would just focus in on the wreck so they could see it. And I'm standing there, and they're, you know, they're working, and they get him out and get him on the stretcher, and he reaches up. If you, I don't know if you remember, and he adjusts his oxygen mask. I slugged the doctor. I said, look at that. That son of a gun still alive. <laughs> wow. I mean, the weight of the world <laughs> fell off of me the moment I saw him move that oxygen mask. And they, they said they are going to transport him right to the hospital. So I went over to Halifax, and I got thrown out of the emergency room three times. I kept sneaking in. They wouldn't, didn't want me to go in there, so I'd find another way to get in so I could just make sure, you know, I could see them. And not could, even as a family member? No, not in where they were working on Okay, them. Okay, yeah. You know, not wow. in the actual yeah. ICU. A miracle. Oh. Nothing short of a miracle that yeah. 
a human survived that. That's uh, all you can say. Through his recovery, and, and I want to say this, the, the time, the first time I went in, he was in his, in his room, and I thought he was in great shape. <laughs> For what he just went through, he was in great shape. He had a broken wrist and some few little burns and, you know, sore muscles. And all he kept saying is how many people were hurt in the grandstands. That's all he was worried about. No kidding. Wow. How many people. And before he left Halifax, he went and met with everybody that was in that hospital with him. He went and talked to them all. I mean, hmm. I did not know that. Early in Jeff's career, uh, 1969 or 70, he was involved in an accident. He was a rookie in the Modified Series, and he was involved in an accident at Shangri-La Speedway. It was a heat race. A car spun out in front of him. He hit the car hit the outside wall right in front of the grandstands. The two cars went in the wall, and the third car went up over Jeff's car and went in the grandstands and killed three people. Mm. I did not know Jeff that. Jeff nearly quit racing over Oh, that. my goodness. No, I didn't know that. You know, and he, wow. he darn near quit. He almost, there almost was not a racing career for Jeff Bodine because he heard the people screaming and saw him, and it tore him up. So all he could think of was that all over again. You know. Wow. You want to take a sec? No, I'm good. I'm All good. Right. Brett, also that year, you became a trailblazer in NASCAR when you became one of the first, if not the first, to, to wear a Hans device. Yep. And you and I talked for a book that I was doing, and you told me that you first came across the folks from Hans during a test at Indy? Yes, that right. Correct? That's okay. correct, yeah. Um, a gentleman uh, that I had met uh, when I was at Bernstein's, uh, he worked for Ernie Elliott, and, and uh, he now was working for Hans, and he was at the test at Indy. It was a, a multi-car test at that time, the testing rules. They, they had test days. And uh, I had seen him. Uh, it was a three-day test. The second day of the test, we talked, and he showed me the device, you know, and I, I really, I was impressed. Uh, I had heard about something a long time ago that was this big awkward thing, and I think Kyle ran it or tried to run it once. This big old, but it, it just did. It was a little impractical on its size. So uh, I asked him, "How you doing with that?" He said, "I can't get anybody to even talk to me about it." You know, and. We had gone through some bad times. Mm-hmm. We lost some, some of our colleagues. Uh, and race car drivers are funny. They don't want to talk about that stuff. And they want to keep doing what they're doing because that's what got them there. I want the seat the same. I want the same belts. Because if I'm standing here today okay, it must have been okay because I survived what I've been through. But the one thing that was happening in our sport, we were going a lot faster. Every year we were going faster and technology was really creeping in. Cars were getting way better. Tires were getting way better. The radial tire brought speed. Engine development brought speed. Aerodynamics brought speed. And we were going faster and faster. And we were going, we were hitting the wall harder. And we were needing some driver uh, safety enhancements. Uh, We, we talked about it. I said, 
come on over tomorrow morning. Third day of practice, I'm, I'm going to narrow this down to one car, and we'll make the adjustments to this other car. So the last day, we he gave me a setup. I put an eye, got in the car, and I we had to cut my headrest off and move it. And so I told the guy, I said, get that car ready. I want to make about 10-lap run in that. I said, nothing special. Just put some tires on it, and I'm going to go out. I want to try this thing out. I went out, and I ran 10 laps with it. You know, I saw the engineering benefit of what it was going to do for you in a, in a in a wreck and I called the shop I, we were going to Pocono the next race I said here's what you got to do that Pocono car cut the headrest off offset it three inches weld it back on brace it up they said what are you doing I said I, I wanna, I'm going to run the Hans device at Pocono well I showed up at Pocono with it and uh, I got made fun of I bet couple guys made fun of me. Dale was one of them. And he said, what are you, some kind of pussy? What do you need that thing for? You can't see with that. You can't turn your head. I said, Dale, we, we all need to look into this. This, this. this is really, really a good safety item. Along with Dale, how much pushback did you get from other drivers? Well, same, you know, same thing, wanting to know what it was. and A lot of guys didn't even want to, didn't want to look at it. Right. But two two guys did. Matt Kenseth and Dale Jarrett. Both of them come over and wanted to understand it. And they came with an open mind. And uh, next February, when we lost Dale, there was six of us in that race wearing it. And Matt Kenseth and Dale Jarrett were. And I want to think I helped convince them that they needed to wear it. What was your reaction when Dale said what he said to you? That's that's the intimidator. That's the tough guy coming out. Uh, he wasn't ever going to come to you and look for information or help with anything. He was going to make his own mind up. And, uh, you know, I came from a different world. I came from a world where I'd stand at the driver's meeting at the Spring Sizzler at Stafford. Big modified race of the year, first one of the year. You know, there'd be 80 of us standing there at that driver's meeting, and you'd look around and say, I wonder what one or two, three of us aren't going to be here next year. That was the world I came from. Yeah. Wow. We were looking for ways to make things safer in the modifieds because we were going way fast on little big racetracks. So... I was a little bit more open to safety enhancements. You know, I, when I, the first cup car I ever drove was for Cale Yarbrough. I tested it. Talladega. I was earmarked to be Cale's replacement until I got, got the Bud Moore ride. Wow. Okay. And I tested a car with a piece of aluminum on the right-hand part of the seat and nothing on the left. <laughs> And I ran 202 miles an hour around Talladega in that seat. And I, I came from a world where, man, you wrapped, the modified yeah. seats were wrapped around you. We, yeah. we wore head tie-downs that went under our arms. Yeah. And here I am running 200-plus miles an hour, bouncing up and down in a bus seat. And I was like, this, we got to do better than this. And, you know, I, I commend my brother Jeff. He's the one that brought that seat technology and brought it to Brian Butler. We ran fiberglass seats 
in our modifies and said, just duplicate this into aluminum for me. And, and that's how Butler built got started. Jeff showed him how to build a seat that we were used to running. And our seats came from the sports car world originally. Uh, so... Sorry, I get off track, but oh, no, no, that's, that's good. That's I, I, I want to say I'm fine. very proud that I was the first to wear it in competition in a cup race, the Heinz Vice, and to what it meant to the world of motorsports. The fact that I took that step that day, eventually it would have come. It, you know, it didn't come only because of me, but I was, I, I kept the ball rolling for it. With that being said, you were still driving your own stuff. How difficult was it at that point to keep up out on the racetrack with everything that you were having to deal with off the racetrack and having to chase sponsorship and, and do everything that you had to do as an owner? How, how difficult was that time? Uh, extremely difficult. Huh. Uh, I, I, you know, I should have listened to Ricky Rudd and Bill Elliott <laughs> when they tried to talk me out of it. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, and you know, I I could never land that sponsorship that afforded me a proper PR staff, proper marketing department, uh, a proper engineering department. Um, I was trying to be all of them. I was trying to help engineer the car. I was trying to help find the sponsorships. I would do the sponsorship proposals. It was it was difficult, very difficult. But you know, this motor, this is my love. This is my life. It always has been, and always will be. And you know, I didn't know anything but to just keep working hard and and try to try to make it better. In June two thousand three, you get word that Hooters is not going to be back as your sponsor for the next year, and then you are involved in a crash during the final practice session at Michigan that leaves you. In pretty a, banged up in a bad way yeah, yeah. It left me in a bad way you never drove again after that no nope. um, was that because the business had just gotten too difficult was it because of the injuries or maybe a combination of the two and something else so uh i did try to drive okay. ag- again uh after i recovered uh, richmond no i tried to drive at uh, uh pocono okay. for Larry McClure, and we missed the show. And I kept my team together long enough to go back to Indy. I wanted to run Indy again. Um, a tid, little tidbit about the pride of Indy for my race team was our little race team held the track record there for two years in speed. We didn't, we didn't sit on the pole. Yeah. We did it in second-round qualifying. Ricky Rudd sat on the pole with a track record, and I came back the next day and broke his record on second-day qualifying. So proud of that for our little race team because, you know, Indy, everybody had their best stuff. And if you can beat everybody with their best stuff, that's a yeoman's right, job right. right there, you know. So, yeah, wrecked at Michigan, severe concussion, knocked out a bunch of teeth, broke my shoulder, uh, ribs, and uh, I was in a bad way, and I knew Hooters. That was actually to be the last race Hooters was a sponsor. Right. And uh, I, I could have called it quits that that weekend, and said, you know, screw Hooters. We're not. They they haven't been too friendly to us. I'm not going to be friendly to them. But I said no. 
I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. Flew Jeff up. He started the race in the backup car with no practice, and we represented Hooters the best we could in that race, our final race with them. He drove that thing all the, from last all the way to 13th, and I was in the motorhome. I had a radio. I was laid up, man. I, I was in bad shape. And, and uh, the deal with the guys was we're going to run until we run out of tires because you have to buy so many tires to practice and qualify. Right. So you run until you're out of tires. And Mike Hillman sent somebody back to me said, do you see how good we're running? We ought to keep going. I said, no, we're done. Yeah. So yeah. when we were out of tires, we were done. Jeff did a great job, man. He came up and drove that thing All like a champ. All of this, and I hope I'm not stepping out of bounds here, but all of this took a toll on your personal life as well. Oh, yeah, it did. And Steven. your personal finances. Yeah, we were going through, a, at the time of that Michigan wreck, we were going through a a divorce and uh, uh, personally uh, things were tough you know and a lot going on uh, uh, when when we didn't make the indie race and I had to go home and tell the short staff we had left that we were done uh, I was I was living in my bus in the shop and the next week, the bank came and took the bus. And the bank put a lock on the race shop. And I had to borrow uh, $1,000 from my brothers to get an apartment. Uh, that's how low I was. I, uh, yep, had no furniture. I had a TV sitting on a cardboard box and a long, long chair. And I was sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag. So, I, I remember you got past that, you and I. Remember that trip we took to Fayetteville? Yes. And we did a lot of talking on the way yep. back, and you, things were better. Oh, things yeah. Things were rolling for you pretty good about yep. that. Huh? Yep. Yeah. I was blessed. Uh, Carolyn Carrier was my publicist. Yeah. And when we went to the abbreviated schedule that two, year 2003, um, I said, Carolyn, i got to make some money somehow. So she, she got a relationship with a, a car show company, and I would go to the car shows and sign autographs. And uh, so I went to, uh, she booked me at, I was still doing appearances for Hooters, but she booked me at a car show in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. Listen to this. So I, I had to go to F uh, Phoenix, Arizona for a, a Hooters grand opening, and I did that on on Friday night, Friday and Friday night, took the red eye back to Charlotte Friday night, went out in the parking lot, changed suitcases because from Phoenix, Arizona to Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, pretty drastic temperature <laughs> change, climate change. Yeah. Uh, flew to, to Moncton through Toronto and uh, had to do a car show there that evening, Saturday evening. So the province of New Brunswick is bilingual, so there's a lot of French-speaking people. So at the car show, um, the, general, the gentleman that put the show on had one of his employees at his uh, clothing store in the mall uh, sat next to me to be interpret for the French so I could communicate and, and get it right. Well, that nice lady is the mother of our twins <laughs> 16 years later. Atta boy! 
<laughs> right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's how we met. Wow. It was, so, I mean, fantastic. It was meant to be. How did it come about that you went to work for NASCAR? So uh, when 2004 rolled around, Brett Bodine still wasn't sold that he was done driving. I called, you know, financial, I was in a bad way. I called Mike Helton and said, Mike, is there any way you could cop me a credential and a hard card for the 2004 season? I said, if I get a job, I'll pay you back. But, you know, I need to get to Daytona. So I loaded up my, my vehicle, and I went to Daytona with my helmet and all my my gear. And you never know, you know, right? If you're not there, you, you're forgotten about. And if you're not there, you can't fill in if someone needs you. So I got down there and just kind of hanging around the garage area and Mike and I talked and said, what are you going to do? I said, well, Mike, I don't know. I said, you know, it's, I talked to Doc Petty after my accident. And he said smart money would be not to get another concussion. Uh, we had kind of narrowed it down that I'd had over 12 in my entire career and it was probably a, not a good thing, but I'd made a living driving a race car since I was 16. I really didn't know what else I could I could yeah. do, yeah. you know. Uh, so the day went on, and he hunted me down again and said, Hey, uh, Bill and I would like to talk to you. Can you be over at Bill's office tomorrow morning? I said, Sure. Yeah, I'll come over. Went over there, and uh, they said, You know, we're building this new car tomorrow, and you've got a lot of building experience fabrication experience you got um, a lot of just solid race experience we really need a test driver for it um, how would you like to come work for the company oh wow <laughs> yeah, i never saw that one coming so i said can you give me a, a month this is a big decision. Can you give? Can you wait on me a month? And I'll give you. He said, "Okay." So uh, a month went by, and Mike called me. He said, "Meet me at the R and D center, Gary, and I'd like to talk to you if you're still interested." And, I, and obviously, I was, and I had nothing going on. So went over there, and they made me made me an offer, and I, I accepted. Now, was pace car driver at the time, or were you oh, the no. safety? Yeah, no. yeah, that was not a, that wasn't on the table at the time. Okay. You know, Buster was doing it, and right. they had no yeah. issues with it. But that came later on, and said, "Hey, you might as well start doing that." I was really hired. Uh, you know, kind of they made a title up. Uh, uh, the safety co- cost research. Okay. Try to help with the cost. Yeah. Cut, cut costs. You know, right. be, I went to teams, talked to owners, and talk to them about what their concerns were and budgeting and stuff. I even did that a little bit for Jim France over at IMSA. I went to the IMSA teams and talked to those owners, and I just would put together, you know, uh, a presentation so they could look at it and, uh, and make decisions. The rules makers could make decisions. And Gary and I had been great friends for years, so it was a no-brainer for me to go to work for right, Gary. Right. So... You eventually did become the pace car driver, and I'm I'm an aspiring pace car driver myself. Okay. Uh, so what what kind of advice would you would you have for somebody looking to get into that line of work? So, uh, well, you know, today is a little different. 
because they're out there by themselves with the COVID thing. There's not a passenger. So no, they're, they're doing it on their own. When I did it, we had two people. Uh, Buster would sit on the right-hand side, and he would control the lights, and he would talk to the series director on his radio. And I would drive the pace car and advise the race director, who I always worked with was David Hoots, yeah. uh, of track conditions and what needed to be done to get the track in order. And people say, always ask me, a little different than what you did, how do you become a pace car driver? And I said, well, racing the Cup Series for 15 years, that's a pretty good start. I just learned today, you're still working for NASCAR. Yes, yeah, proudly still working. What are you doing? So uh, I've moved out of the competition, uh, or excuse me, I've moved out of the R&D side. Um, very proud of the work I did was part of over there. I uh, had a great team to work with, great engineers. Uh, I'm a two-year engineer. I'm a half engineer, I guess. I don't know what you call it. Anyways, I have a two-year degree in engineering. But I had a great group of people I worked with. Uh, I think we accomplished a lot of good things. A couple main things was the, uh, the spec engine for the touring series. I feel that engine really saved those series. They were struggling with engine cost in the modifies in the K&N series, which is now the ARCA series. Uh, that spec engine really helped those team owners. And uh, modified car counts are fantastic now. The, the series is doing well. And then uh, the other one of the other big projects, along with a car tomorrow, and I'm very proud of that. And, and that was really our first project. I did all the NASCAR driving testing for that. We tested numerous racetracks, Talladega, Bristol, Martinsville, Richmond, Daytona. I mean, we, we tested a lot of places, Atlanta, Charlotte, uh, with that car and, and got it to where it is today. And I feel that the engineering and, and the design of that car has saved drivers from injury. There's no question when you look at the Michael McDowell wreck that Texas, that he got up and walked away from that. Uh, the, that car was very much needed for the same reason the Hans device was needed. We're going way faster and hitting walls a lot harder. One of the other projects that I'm very proud of was the composite body for the Xfinity series. Uh, I headed that project up and had a great staff work with Five Star and he brought that to the teams and the racetrack and I think it's doing a very good job for them. So in the R&D side, proud of the work. Uh, my time there. I'm now in the competition department, and uh, I still do and have done since I came with the company. All the I chair the committee that does the driver approvals for all of our series. So if you're an aspiring driver wanting to get into the modified series, you send a resume to me. Our committee reviews it. Uh, we determine where you can go race. Then all the paths all the way along, you continue to get reviewed and in uh, upgraded, whether it's bigger tracks or mm-hmm. higher series, until you race the Daytona 500 someday, then then you're off our radar screen and there's new ones coming along. And we have this pipeline going all the time. Uh, and we review drivers constantly. And, and uh, So this Jimmy Johnson <laughs> kid, you think he's going to work out? I think he's going to do okay. <laughs> yeah, I think he's going to be pretty good. You know, some of the drivers that have gone through the entire system with me is the chairperson Joey Logano, Chase Elliott? You know, wow. You know, it, it, it's been fun to watch these kids and interact with them early in their career, and their parents. And it, from Joey being a, only allowed to run half miles on a K and N to Cup champion. Wow. 
And uh, I also, um, this year, kind of uh, supervise a group of officials out of the Charlotte office. Uh, we, we assist in the pit road officiating uh, in a remote location at Charlotte. They still have the primary location at the racetrack in the technology center, the trailer that travels around. And there's a group that pit road officiate there, and there's a group of us that pit road officiate out of Charlotte. And that, that program's been fun to get started and get it going, and it continues to grow, and uh, it's been a, a lot of fun to oversee that. Brett, you have had a, a lifetime's worth of perspective in a lot of different areas. Family relationships, racing, professional, personal, whatever. But you told us before we started recording about your wife. How do you put that into perspective with well, everything going on? Well, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a challenge. My wife, Kathy, uh, four years ago got diagnosed with leukemia, uh, uh, it's a it's a survivable type of com- leukemia. It is, it's you know it's a challenge for our our family. It's uh, thank God for good insurance at NASCAR. Uh, uh, they have a wonderful program, but you know, it's life. You don't have to look very far to see someone that has it way worse than you do. And if it, you know, we're blessed that she got the type of leukemia that's survivable and treatable. She'll never be without it. She'll always have it, but it, it's very manageable and treatable, and hopefully it will continue to be that way. And um, uh, She has the same type Rick Hendrick has, and, you know, Rick's doing well with his. Uh, we've, we've compared notes uh, quite a bit, and the type leukemia medicine that Rick takes um, doesn't work for my wife, and the type that my wife takes doesn't work for Rick. So people are different and have different strains of the leukemia and uh, the chemo treatments. There's a lot of them. And hopefully we'll always have a, uh, a type chemo that will keep her leukemia manageable. Um, but no, we're blessed. It's just, it is what it is. We can manage it. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Ball Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast and at QWare we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team and helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Steve, I know that you were at Daytona when Jeff had his wreck in the truck race in the year 2000, but I assume that you wouldn't have been in the press box that day because you were typically just up in the press box for the cup races. 
Well, yeah, Rick, I was in the press box. Were you uh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was up there because it was the first truck race. And I saw Jeff's truck get airborne and hit the fence along the front grandstand. It reminded me of Bobby Allison's accident at Talladega in 1987. But still, the first concern I had was, of course, is Jeff okay? And the second concern I had was, were the fans okay? Some debris may well have gone into the grandstands. Didn't know at that point. I had seen a lot of wrecks up to that point, and I was not in the press box. I was down the infield media center, but I was watching on the monitors, and I have this vivid memory of Casey Atwood flipping right in front of the press box at the conclusion of the, I want to say it was the 1999 Bush Series race at Daytona, but I don't know that I had ever seen an accident that made me almost physically ill like that one did. Now, I was actually at the track when Michael Waltrip and Mike Harmon wrecked at Bristol. Right. But when I saw those accidents, I didn't actually see them happen. I just saw the aftermath. But I think in those instances, it was more shock than anything. It was a shock just to see the aftermath. But to actually watch Jeff's accident from start to finish, to feel my heart up in my throat like that, yeah, that one was the one that just about made me physically ill. So I know how I felt, but I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be in Brett's shoes. And this is how Brett knew that Jeff was still alive. He was watching the crews get him out of what was left of the truck on a monitor in the infield care center. And (laughs) he saw Jeff reach up and adjust the oxygen mask on his face. So he knew that Jeff had movement in his extremities and saw that. And he said, look at that, that son of a gun survived. (laughs) And so I can't even imagine what kind of relief that must have been for him. Oh, absolutely. Right after the accident, I didn't really know how Jeff was. But, you know, this sounds cold, but you have to do your job. And so we went into the grandstands. Dave Williams was with me, and we talked to people who sat right in the area where that crash was and tried to find out their reaction or if anybody was hurt. We did an entire separate piece on the incident as far as the fans could see it and as far as it, were there any injuries. We did find out that there was one minor injury, maybe a couple. Uh, talking with some fans up in the grandstand about that, but nothing very serious. But, you know, I repeat myself, it sounds cold, but when you have a job to do, you just have to do it. Brett goes over to Halifax and he proceeds to get thrown out of the emergency room three times (laughs) (laughs) as, as he's trying to get to where Jeff was. And Steve, I don't know the particulars. I don't know what the security was, but I wouldn't have thought that a brother would be thrown out i wouldn't have either most everybody who has any kind of interest in nascar is at least familiar with his accident and jeff has told the story about seeing his dad in the midst of that accident a number of times but as we have encountered many times here on the podcast the interviews that we do very often add yet another layer onto stories that we thought we already knew inside and out. And that was certainly the case with Brett's description of the aftermath of Jeff's accident. I did not know 
that Jeff had gone and talked to the fans in the stands who were hospitalized. And I don't remember how many there actually were, but from what Brett said, Jeff actually did go and check on them there at the hospital. And this is where that came from, Steve. I didn't know this story. No, I didn't know any of this. To be honest with you, when we went in the grandstands and got the story, we learned there were some minor injuries, but must have been more to it than that for fans to be hospitalized. And I sure didn't know that. This is the rest of the rest of the story. Jeff, very early in his career, had been involved in an accident at Shangri-La Speedway up in New York where three fans were actually killed, Steve. And uh, Jeff very nearly quit racing after that. And I can imagine why. I I cannot imagine how difficult that must have been. I agree. I agree. So you can imagine exactly what was going through Jeff's mind following that Daytona wreck. Of course. It's got to be experiencing something so bad all over again. Kyle Petty had tried a version of the Hans device at some point in the 1990s. But Brett was probably the first Winston Cup driver to use the style that we now know. But he took some definite heat for it. In Brett's defense, here is where he was coming from. He would be at the Spring Sizzler modified race up at Stafford Speedway in Connecticut, I believe. And he would look around and he would actually literally wonder to himself what two or three drivers we're going to lose their life that year. Mm-hmm. And so apparently on the modified circuit, they did everything possible when it came to safety. They came up with early versions of the containment seats. They were fiberglass. They weren't metal, but they supported the shoulders and the hips as opposed to a Winston Cup seat not supporting basically anything. They also used the kind of the harness systems that went up under the the arms and attached to the helmet. And so they did focus on safety. Given that kind of background, why wouldn't you want to do everything absolutely possible to improve not only your own safety, but for those around you as well? Well, what Brett was doing was taking the the, uh, information he knew from his modified racing the improvements they had made there, and translating them into Winston Cup competition. And as you said, he took some heat for that, and it wasn't widely accepted at that point in time. NASCAR took so much heat in the years 2000 and 2001. People were saying that they weren't doing enough when it came to safety. People were saying that if NASCAR had acted quicker, that we wouldn't have lost Dell Earnhardt. We wouldn't have lost Blaze Alexander. We wouldn't have lost this driver, that driver, whoever. But when you hear Brett Bodine say that Dell Earnhardt called him, uh-huh. <laughs> called him a name that I won't repeat here for Darren to, at the very least, give the Hans device a try. NASCAR was facing some very active opposition in a number of different areas when it came from safety and it came from basically the highest levels possible. For me, Steve, it all boils down to this. Were you going to be the one who told Dell Earnhardt what he had to wear or use in his car? No, you're not. No. uh -uh. The ironic thing, Rick, is that NASCAR's greatest strides in safety from Safer walls to Hans devices to 
I can't even mention all the things that happened. They all happened, ironically, after the death of Dale Earnhardt in February 2001. Steve, there were so many different questions about the Hans device. I remember not knowing what the Hans device was. I thought that it actually connected somehow to the race car and became a part of the race car when, in fact, that wasn't the case. I remember the debate over the soft walls, the safer barriers, and they had tried a version of a soft wall at Indianapolis, and Ari Lindock hit that during a, I believe, an IROC race at Indy, and that thing catapulted him back into traffic. There were so many moving parts, and there were so many different opinions, and so many people saying what NASCAR should or shouldn't do. It was literally a darned if you do, darned if you don't proposition back then for them. Absolutely. But the bottom line is, Rick, NASCAR knew. They just knew they had to do something. So they started making the strides that they did in 2001. And let's remember, everything they have done since 2001 has been changed, refined, improved. It's an ongoing process. So commend NASCAR for making these steps and commend NASCAR for making the changes when necessary. Finally, Brett gets in that crash at Michigan, and he is truly banged up. He had just been informed that he had lost his sponsorship from Hooters. He's going through a divorce and living in his motorhome at the shop. And when the bank came in and took the shop and took the motorhome, that left Brett with literally nowhere else to go, and he had to borrow $1,000 from his brothers so he could get an apartment. And, Steve, that is humbling to go to a family member and say, I'm in trouble and I need help. And, and I don't know what happened in his personal life. It's none of our business. But the fact is he was going through it, and he had gone through so much in the sport as a driver and an owner and had lost everything. I felt for Brett. I felt for Brett just remembering it. Oh, yeah. Well, where else is Brett going to go? I mean, let's be honest. The bank is not going to touch him. And I'm sure that while he had wealthy friends, maybe some team owners and that type of individual, you don't feel comfortable going anywhere else but your family. And you really don't like that. But Brett was in the position where I don't think he had any choice. Thankfully, as I mentioned in the intro, Brett Bodine's story does not end there. At the time, he was doing some car shows, and he was doing some car shows and signing autographs simply to be able to make ends meet. And he does a show up in Canada, and he has to have an interpreter for the locals who spoke French. And <laughs> Steve, I love this. He wound up marrying the interpreter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. first time he told me that story, he just grinned from ear to ear. <laughs> and they now have twins, and they also have an adopted son who is now actually working in the sport. So that is a continuance of the Bodine legacy. And then Mike offers Brett a chance to go to work for NASCAR, helping teams try to figure out ways to lower costs, and he eventually does become the second best pace car driver that the sanctioned body has ever had. Well, who's the first? 
<laughs> well, technically, yours truly was a NASCAR pace car driver. <laughs> <laughs> Brett had gone to Daytona uh, with really nothing to do and no plan, but he had to go to Daytona because that's where everybody in NASCAR is for the 500. And you have to stay visible and keep networking. And he just casually asked Mike one day, I'm really strapped. Mike, have you got anything for me? And Mike told him, stick around and come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it. And that's when Brett got the job over and started to turn everything around. Yeah, Mike told him, said, uh, would you have some time to meet with me and Bill France Jr. over in the offices? And what's Brett going to say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't believe I got time. Yeah, I believe <laughs> I'm making that meeting too. And see, that's why he went to Daytona. Something might happen. And it Absolutely. Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. And that's if right. you're there and in the right place at the right time, things can happen. And it yep. certainly did for Brett. And I'm very glad of that. Today, Brett no longer drives the pace car, but he does chair the committee. And I didn't know this. He chairs the committee that does all the driver licensing approvals and he has worked with drivers from the very beginning of their careers, like Joey Logano, he said, and Chase yeah. Elliott. So that must be a really neat process. But then he also works remotely out of the Charlotte office with the video officiating that NASCAR has set up. So right now, Brett has got two very important positions in NASCAR and some financial stability. Quite a change from a few years ago. After everything that Brett has seen and done and experienced in his life and in his career, from the mountaintops to the valleys, his wife, Kathy, was diagnosed with leukemia four years ago. And Steve, this is what fans need to take away from this interview with Brett Bodon. Yes, he has gone through a lot and he has been through a lot and he has been at rock bottom, but... The one line, the one line that sticks out to me more than any other that he said was this. He said, that's life. And he said, you don't have to go very far to find somebody who has it worse than you do. He's exactly right. And the good thing for all of us to remember is that just exactly what he said. If you think you got it bad, just think for a moment. There's always someone who's got it worse. You know what you do when you come to that point? Keep digging. Listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Just yesterday, Brian tweeted out a series of four T-shirts. There's a Rick Mass t-shirt, a Harry Gant t-shirt, a Kyle Petty t-shirt, and also a Ward Burton t-shirt. And that's just one post out of probably 20 or 30 that he sent out during the week. All of these are vintage early 1990s to, I would say, early 2000s. The Ward Burton t-shirt's a, a caterpillar, so that would be early 2000s or so. Brian is basically throwing open the doors to a museum. And he's making it available to his <laughs> fans and to his followers. And it's well worth the trip down memory lane. He posted a T-shirt of 
with Buddy Baker's name on it from Buddy's driving days with a sponsor I had never heard of before in my life. <laughs> I don't know where he gets this stuff. It was actually a business that Buddy, I don't know, owned or sponsored or that sponsored Buddy or whatever it was, but it was Buddy Baker Boat and Van World. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've never heard of yes, Buddy Baker Boat and Van World. <laughs> So that was an awesome find. I believe that was from Brian's personal collection because he was actually wearing it. But it does show the kind of material that he's able to come up with. And it's routine that he comes up with all this amazing stuff. So listen, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter, and you can check out exactly what he has available. You can do that at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy. Dot com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. The September 25th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup Scene carried coverage of the MBNA 400 from Dover. And Steve, that was actually the very first race at Dover that had been shortened to 400 miles which is something a lot of uh, drivers were grateful for too and a lot of media members <laughs> <laughs> and yes i remember the reaction and people saying well if they're going to shorten the race they need to lower the prices and all that i covered several of the 500 mile races at dover and that was a long long yeah. long day <laughs> It was. I know exactly how you feel. That was more an endurance than it was an actual race, period. End of sense. And I'm not going to apologize for it. That was a long day. There are many who will agree with you. (laughs) Mark Martin won that race from the pole, and that netted him a cool $114,000 bonus from Unical. So that was a nice little paycheck. Yes, it was. And Steve, again, although this was the first race at Dover with the shortened 400-lap distance, Mark and his Roush Racing team used fuel mileage to get themselves to the checkered flag. Kyle Petty was having a great day and had lapped all but four cars before having to make his final stop of the day 20 laps from the end. And Mark kept right on going. (laughs) Mark's engines were obviously good but they also used up a lot of fuel and they had lost out on several fuel mileage races. So back in January of that year, Jack had apparently decided that he was going to win a race where fuel mileage played a factor. And Mark said in this issue, we had everybody covered except Kyle Petty and he had us covered, but Jack took care of him. We need to win one on fuel mileage. And we did today. You know, I've often wondered if you have a 400-mile race versus a 500-mile race, are the fuel calculations different when you run a race that's 100 miles shorter than you're used to? Kind of wondering if that played a factor in it, and Jack and his team just sort of figured it out a little bit better. Well, evidently, Mark and runner-up Dell Earnhardt just pitted three times during this race. 
Right. And so they started out the day basically working fuel mileage. And so right. they planned to make just three stops. And Kyle actually had to make four. And that's right. what cost Kyle the race. Right. And I think calculating the number of pit stops you would need is a different thing when you're 400 miles than it is when you're 500 miles. This was the first of what would eventually be four Winston Cup wins for Mark at Dover. And it allowed him to close within 105 points of Jeff Gordon in the point standings. Jeff finished seventh in this race, two laps down. Dell Jarrett was fifth, one lap down. And he moved to third in the Winston Cup point standing, 79 points behind Mark and 184 points behind Jeff. Mark said the 24 car is going to be hard to catch, obviously referring to Jeff, unless they have trouble. They didn't have the greatest luck today, and they didn't run the greatest today. Maybe they will have one more problem, and it will all equal out. But it's not just between us and the 24. That 88 car, referring to Dell Jarrett, is strong too. He's going to be hard to beat. Jeff Gordon that year wound up getting bit at Talladega, and in the last couple of races of the year, he finished 17th in both of those races. Jeff did hold on to win his second championship, but Del Jarrett took second in the standings, just 14 points back. And Mark was third, 29 points down. And they did it without – They okay, Steve, you got you to gotta help me out with this. All right. They did it without a, they did it without a playoff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a very, very good points battle in that year. I still maintain that that type of finish in the points standings was – the exception and not the rule, but it was still a good year for the fans, a good show for them to watch, and they didn't have to argue about a playoff. <laughs> Man, who asked your opinion? <laughs> <laughs> Dell Earnhardt finished second in this race, 10.334 seconds behind Mark. It was his third runner-up finish of the year that year that had so desperately frustrated new crew chief Larry McReynolds. That year, Dale went winless for the very first time since 1978. And again, this was just three weeks after that bizarre episode at Darlington where he had actually lost consciousness just after the race started. Dale said in this issue, I feel great after this race. I remember every lap of it. <laughs> Dover's a tough place. I figured this would be the test. If there was anything wrong with me, it would happen here. Well, I still maintain that Dale wasn't right for most of that year. And later on, like I said, Dale admitted it. Kyle Petty led three times for a total of 191 of the final 239 laps. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, the difference was the fact that he had to make four pit stops while Mark and Dale only came in three times. Kyle eventually finished third in this race. Kyle said, we got beat on fuel mileage, not on the track. We'll take it. And he's right. If you if you get beat on fuel mileage, there's nothing much you can do about it except accept it and then plan fuel mileage strategies for the next race. There was a package in this issue celebrating Martinsville Speedway's 50th anniversary. And in your commentary at the front of the paper, you remembered your relationship with Dick Thompson, the track's longtime PR rep. And you have mentioned Dick several times on the podcast. But what is your best Dick Thompson story that you can share? Oh, well, it's, it's probably the story of uh, Dick and I at Rockingham. 
I was staying at a motel where Clay Earls and Dick Thompson were. And we went to dinner, and as we got back from dinner, uh, Dick said, come to my room. We're going to have some fun. And then he winked. So I went back to my room, got ready, back to Dick's room, knocked on the door, and there was Dick wearing his T-shirt and boxer shorts. <laughs> so I said, uh, I Okay, don't know Steve, where are you this. going with this, bud? <laughs> I don't know about this. ain't this. that kind of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Dick said, we're really going to have some fun. And he went and got a bucket of ice and two Pepsis. And he put them down in the table in his room. I sat at the chair. He sat on the bed, turned on the TV. And said, okay, get ready. I said, okay, I'm ready. He turned on this terrible grade B horror movie called The Claw with a big rubber bird flying in the air and attacking jet planes <laughs> in black and white. I thought, Dick, is this your idea of fun? <laughs> <laughs> Dick Thompson that, was evidently my kind of guy. Dick, that's the way Dick had fun. I just thought it was great. But I watched every minute of that rotten movie <laughs> and drank my Pepsi and then said, good night, Dick. And he smiled and waved at me. And Steve, you mentioned in your commentary that Dick would bring drivers by the newspaper office there in Roanoke for them to be interviewed. And, and you actually had this line in your commentary. Incidentally, does anyone know the last time a driver walked into a newspaper office to give an interview? One day in the early 80s, when I was with Grand National Scene. Now, at that time, Grand National Scene, their offices were in a converted country store in Concord. Very small. Had one door going out the front, one door going out the back. One day, I was sitting at my metal desk with my chicken wire in basket <laughs> and my royal typewriter, and the door opened up, and this kid walked in, and walking behind him was Harry Hyde, and the kid said, hello, I'm Bobby Hill. I just want to stop by and say hello. That was the only other time anybody had come to my offices for an interview. Steve, I think it's so cool that you say that because I have a very similar story. It was a few years after this, but Dana Landry, who was one of the premier PR reps in the Bush series, he actually brought Brian Vickers by the office a few weeks before Brian made his first Bush series start in 2001. Brian was 17 years old at the time. I know this will come as a shock, but Dana took Brian and I to lunch. <laughs> really? <laughs> the, the way to get some press out of Rick Houston was to take him to lunch. <laughs> sure. Dana Chinese, had me figured Chinese, out. Yeah, Chinese buffet if you can make it. <laughs> but Dana did that, and the next year, Brian had some sponsorship from the Army, and I met he and Dana up in Washington, D.C. for a tour of the White House and the Pentagon, and this was – less than a year after 9-11. And so we did a tour of the inside of the Pentagon, which was obviously very impressive. But then we went outside and we were standing at the entrance to the construction site where they were doing the repairs from where the plane hit. And I had a camera and I was taking some photographs and everything. Well, the, <laughs> I'll never forget it. We hear the sound of footsteps coming up behind us and they were at a quick step 
Uh-huh. They, they weren't just walking up. And I turned around, and here are these two fully armed guards. I know where this is going. And they weren't smiling. And they said, you're not allowed to take pictures in this area. And I was like, um, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> all right. And Brian had a very similar reaction. He was, what, 18 years old by this time. And he looked at him, and I'll never forget this. Brian looked at him and goes, um, it's, it's okay. I'm a NASCAR driver. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't going to wash it with the military. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, yeah, I got to keep my camera and I actually got to keep the film, but yeah, I didn't take any more photos. I can tell you that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. I do not blame you. Another thing that I did not remember, I had no recollection of this whatsoever, but Jeff Burton had to be relieved at New Hampshire by Todd Bodine because of some balance issues that he was experiencing. And after some tests at Duke University Medical Center, it was determined that Jeff had vestibular neuronitis. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's what I'm going with. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Vestibular neuronitis. That's what he had. Jeff said in this story in the SOC section, in layman's terms, I have a virus that has attacked the nerve that sends the message from my inner ear to the brain. A virus tears down the ability of that nerve to do what it is supposed to do. Through simulating the nerve, it will become better just by doing everyday things. Just as you had a virus that causes paralysis, you can teach the nerve to do what it's got to do. And that's what I'm in the process of doing right now. We feel certain that the virus is gone. And I had no recollection of that whatsoever. Me either. Not. That's all brand new to me. Joe Bessie won the Bush Series race at Dover the day before the Winston Cup race. And Buckshot Jones was not happy about it after spinning out of the lead or getting spun out of the lead by Joe, whoever's point of view you want to take on this. And that happened just 14 laps from the end. Buckshot said, I was running the same line the whole time. If Joe Bessie was faster than me, he should have done the same thing I did with Randy LaJoy. Okay. (laughs) I passed LaJoy and never touched him. And he should have done the same. I've never had a problem with Bessie before, but I'm pretty upset right now. And Joe responded, no matter what I did, he would have lost it. He was going to wreck with or without me. I got on the defensive to save the car and save the win. If I touched him, it was after he had gotten his car completely sideways across mine. And Steve, another interesting thing about this race, this kid by the name of Matt Kenseth took third in the Bush series race. And that was his best ever finish in that division to that point. At that time, did any of us think we'd hear a lot more from Matt Kenseth in the years coming? No, we did not. The news that Brett Bodine had removed close call prepaid phone cards, decals from his car was on the first page of the scene on the circuit section. And it ran as a sidebar to a longer story that said that QVC had informed Jeff Bodine that they wouldn't be returning as his sponsor in 1998. And again, that was a bad week on the sponsorship front for the Bodine brothers. Pretty hard to take. Given the news about Michael Jordan, Bubba Wallace, and Denny Hamlin last week, it was interesting that this issue included a news item about NBA Hall of Famer Julius Irving, Dr. J himself, 
and Joe Washington, who had been a running back in the NFL with San Diego, Baltimore, Washington, and Atlanta. The sponsor was Dr. Pepper, and the story said that the driver was going to be Jimmy Foster. But, Steve, I had to laugh when I went back and checked the racing reference stats for Joe Washington. But in 1998, Jimmy Foster, Stanton Barrett, Joe Buford, Nathan Buckey, Jeff Green, Andy Houston, Jimmy Kitchens, Dave Rezendiz, Dennis Setzer, and Mike Wallace all drove for Washington Irving Motorsports. <laughs> Got a very seven down year. <laughs> that was talk a revolving about, door, man. Oh, you talk about a rough beginning. Now that right there is not smooth sailing. But then, Steve, in 1999, Mark Green ran the full schedule for that team. And, Steve, Joe was a great guy. I remember talking to him and just being fascinated that this was a regular guy who had once been in the NFL. So Mark Green run the full schedule in 1999. Uh, yes. Rick, I yeah. don't remember, but I don't think this team lasted very long, did it? No, the following year, I think they ran maybe a handful of races. Once they lost Dr. Pepper as a sponsor, they kind of went away. That was definitely a trailblazing team. And Mark Green, one of my, <laughs> I say this about so many people, but Mark Green and his wife, Kathy, are two of my favorite people in the sport. They are the two of the most humble people that I've ever met. I agree with you. I didn't know Mark as well as you did, but I'll tell you the truth. I knew his brother, David, very well, and he's another very nice guy. So it runs in the family. I'm Steve Mill, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, now that I don't have an update to give on my trek to 5,000 miles, since I've already left that in the rearview mirror, I don't know what we're going to talk about at the end of the show. So what do you got? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been on the job at Front Stretch for for a couple of months right now. It's going very well. Got a great site. A lot of racing information. They have a daily newsletter that you can subscribe to and all types of other things going on at Front Stretch. I'm both. Uh, the man who runs Front Stretch is a very, very busy guy. He's all over the place, but he's got a great product at Front Stretch, and I'm enjoying my time there, very much so. How are you doing on time? I'm, I'm, you okay? I'm here, yeah. Okay. Right. Well, order in peace if you want. I don't. <laughs> 